Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice. If you or someone you know is a young adult, you face many challenges today as you transition from school life to real life. Knowing the dangers of social media can make the difference between getting a job and not getting a job. What about identity theft? Or how about credit card debt? Many young adults today finish school with credit card debt that is over their heads. What about student loans? Currently, the student loan debt in America is pushing the trillion-dollar mark, and many students are having a hard time finding a job. How do they deal with this student loan debt? Did they really realize what they were getting themselves into when they signed for that? Joining us today is Mitch Weiss. Mitch has been chairman and CEO of several commercial finance companies, as well as currently serving as an adjunct professor of finance at the University of Hartford, where he teaches a class on the principles of his ebook, Life Happens, A Practical Guide to Personal Finance from College to Career. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to having you as a guest. I'm the father of three young adults that we're going to be discussing at length today. And I know as we're preparing for this show, you've got a lot of great information that I'm trying to instill on my young adults. And they're still at that age where, you know, Dad, let's not worry about that. You worry too much. Just as I was driving in today, this morning on the news, they were talking about the financial literacy of the millennials. I think you see it, we see it, but hopefully today we can still some wisdom on some of the millennials and maybe some of the parents and grandparents that are listening today can pass this along to their young adults and hopefully before they dig themselves in too deep of a hole can kind of shore up the shoreline a little bit and protect themselves from some of the things that are out there that can really put them in the back seat for many many years and take some time for them to get on their feet where if they know these things they can get started right off the bat on the right foot. You're absolutely right. This is all education, education that unfortunately has been really lacking until the great collapse occurred in 2008 and everybody realized, oh my God, we really don't know this stuff. Well, in your book called Life Happens, A Practical Guide to Personal Finance from College to Career, you also teach your class that basically principles from this book, and one of them kind of touches on something that's really relevant to today's media. You certainly hear a lot about it, and that's Facebook profiling and how that affects you and your job prospects. So let's start there and talk about that. Sure. I've owned and run companies. I've also been a senior executive at several banks. And I can tell you that the background work that's done, especially today for employees coming in, is pretty extensive. And it's, to a great extent, made a lot easier because there's so much out there online. Having said that, I could also tell you how freaked out my students are when I talk to them about all of the stuff that they've put online and how that could come back to haunt them, especially when they're auditioning for a job. So putting those two pieces together, what they put out on their Facebook page, and to the extent that they haven't been really careful about their privacy settings, the party pictures that are there become discoverable. Some of the things that they may have written, posts that they might have put up on other sites where they've identified themselves becomes discoverable. And all of this helps a prospective employer, let alone anybody else, form an opinion about them. I think the expression is so much that we're as much defined by what we do as by the company that we keep. So to the extent that they associate with other people who may be even more extreme, they're tainted by that. Facebook, all social networking sites, I mean, all of this information that's out there is helping people to form opinions 
whether it is for hiring purposes or even for granting credit. I read a couple of months ago about an organization, his name escapes me right now, working with Fair Isaacs Corporation, creator of the FICO score, to develop an algorithm so that you could factor into the FICO score all of this information that's picked up from the social networking sites. Because if you associate with somebody or groups of people that are known bad credit risk, well, then perhaps you're a bad credit risk too. All of these things come back to haunt you. As you're talking about that, I think about my own kids. My wife and I have tried to talk to them about being careful what they're posting on these social sites, and they don't even really think about it. And I told them, I mean, as an employer, you know, us employers are looking at that stuff. You're a former CEO, and I know sometimes the companies that are looking to hire are asking for passwords. And when I mention it to the kids, they say, well, I'd never give them a password. Well, that just pretty much allows you to be no longer considered for that position. And with the unemployment and underemployment right now of the younger generation at high levels that I don't think we've seen in a long, long time, can you afford to take that chance that you won't get that job? What is your opinion on employers asking for passwords? I'm opposed to it. I'll wait for the court case on this because I don't think that employers have any business, have any right to demand that information, quite frankly. As much as I'd love to get into the middle of somebody's account and really get a sense for who they are, I'm not entitled to do that. No differently than I'm entitled to put a tap on their phone or to hire a private investigator so that I could follow them around before I hire them for a job. I wouldn't do those things. What business do I have to go into their Facebook account? Having said that, I know that there are employers, I know there are industries that are looking for this information so they could really determine whether they've got a good guy or a bad guy that's coming on board. As I said, I'll wait for the court case. Right. Now, also, as your background in financial services, as a professional, what do you think about the credit bureaus having any business fishing in this pond like you referenced where they can use that information also that impacts their FICO score? You know, everything that's out there, anything that you put out there that is not guarded becomes fair game. Anything that's out there, if you're not careful about what you put up, and so you put posts up. I once had a friend that was teasing me being in banking and said, you know, your goal in life is to have a million dollars in the bank by the time you want to retire. My goal in life is to owe a million dollars by the time I retire. Hmm. If you're going to go there and be a wise guy and say, you know what, I'm going to look to borrow as much money as I could possibly get and then I'll just declare bankruptcy. And you don't set your privacy settings and that's out there. Well, you know, that's going to influence the person who's granting credit. Anything that's out there that's not protected, that you haven't guarded, becomes fair game. I think with the world of technology changing so fast, it's not something that we've had even time to digest or really think about its impact. So having these conversations are great. Another obviously common thing that's being discussed today, I was just with a client the other day and we're talking about her investments and money and taxes. And one of her major concerns was ID theft. So she kept asking me, what can I do to protect myself from identity theft? So tell us about how that relates to smartphones. How is it that smartphones are opening up their owners to identity theft? Well, the smartphones are storing an incredible amount of information. These are mini computers, in effect. The big things that we used to use are now really in our pockets. Folks are storing in these smartphones all kinds of sensitive data. Not that they should, but because they can. So passwords, dates of birth, anniversary and birthday purposes, a date of birth. I mean, the two most sensitive pieces of information for ID theft purposes is your social security number and your date of birth. So a date of birth is out there. It's stored on the smartphone. Moreover, smartphones now are being enabled to become what are called digital wallets. 
So you download the application, download the app, and then you hold that smartphone over the square code, the QR code at a store, buy a latte just by waving your phone. So now your phone is enabled to make purchases. Where you open yourself up to ID theft is when you lose the phone and you haven't password protected the device and you have not encrypted the information. You're open to fraud that way. So you lose the phone. And how often have we misplaced our phone and had to call ourselves to find it, right? So you misplace the phone, and it may take you a few hours to realize, oh, my God, I left it in Starbucks. Well, in the time that you've left it in Starbucks, somebody has gone out and had a really good time, which leads to the next problem with this. When the phones are enabled to be digital wallets, in using smartphones to make purchases, you have the cell phone carriers give you a few choices. You could link it to your debit card, you could link it to a credit card, or you could have the bills just accumulate with the cell phone carrier, and then they bill you once a month. Well, if you decide that you're going to enable your phone to make charges, then you really want to link it to a credit card because the credit card has superior consumer protections to debit cards or to having the bills accumulated by the cell phone company. Here's why. There's a thing called the Fair Credit Billing Act. This act gives consumers what are known as chargeback rights. So when you get a credit card bill and you see fraudulent transactions there on your statement, you call up the credit card company and say, I didn't make that charge. That's not my charge. And by law, they have to remove that charge from your bill, put it aside, put it in what's called suspense until that matter or that dispute is resolved, one way or the other. However, when you have a charge that's fraudulent, that's pulled against your debit card, well, then the money is already out of your account. And now you've got to contact the bank and tell them that this thing was a fraudulent transaction. And it will take them some time to do the investigation to make sure that you're not the one that perpetrated the fraud. Secondly, with credit cards, if you were to purchase something that doesn't fit, it never comes, whatever the case may be, under the Fair Credit Billing Act, you're permitted to dispute the charge. It's pulled out of your bill. No interest is charged until the dispute is resolved. However, you bought something, you bought earrings at a kiosk at a flea market, you used your card, came home, put them in your ears, and they turned your ears green when they were supposed to be real gold. Well, using a credit card, you dispute the charge and say that I got bogus merchandise and it's returned. In a debit card or in a bill that goes through the cell phone carrier, you're the one that has to then chase down that kiosk owner to get a credit for the merchandise. All right, so you've got to go there, you've got to get the credit, and so then the money goes back into your account. That's why credit cards are important to use with these devices, and overall, you've got to make sure that you password protect and encrypt. As you're talking about that, and I think we need to take a quick break here, I think it's a good transition into talking about credit and young adults because a lot of them have got themselves in trouble. And in the past, we had a guest where they talked about the degrees of separation. And when you make it so easy to spend money like that, I think not only is there fraud as an issue, but people have a tendency if they don't have to actually pay the cash or write out the check and it becomes so easy to just point and click and buy it. And then all of a sudden, now you owe the money or it's just withdrawn from your account. When it's made so easy like that, people make purchases that they probably shouldn't be. So let's talk about that and having good credit for young adults when we return. 
This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your Real Wealth Advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real Wealth Advisors offer security and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, P.O. Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. And now a personal story from the 2010 Life Foundation Spokesperson for Life Insurance Awareness Month, actress Leslie Bibb, whose recent credits include roles in Iron Man 2, Confessions of a Shopaholic, and Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Leslie was just three years old when her dad died. At that time, Leslie had no idea what life insurance was and how it benefited her mother. Today, Leslie realizes the enormous impact it had on her life. Let's hear her story. Hi, I'm Leslie Bibb. Photos are my memories. My parents together dancing to their favorite song and celebrating with friends. Young and in love, they never suspected that their lives together would be cut short. Everything changed when my mother received the awful call that there had been an accident and my father hadn't survived. All of a sudden, the task of raising four girls and keeping our family together fell on her shoulders. But my mom's burden was lessened by my dad's thoughtfulness. His life insurance policy enabled our family to pick up and carry on. The love we show while we are alive is why we live. The love we show after we are gone allows life to continue on. My dad loved us enough to expect the unexpected. Life insurance was his legacy of love to us. No one should be left grieving and in need. Take care of your loved ones by thinking ahead to the unthinkable. Learn more at lifehappens.org, a public service message from the Nonprofit Life Foundation. Welcome back as we continue a great conversation today with Mitch Weiss, who's the adjunct professor of finance at the University of Hartford. And we're talking about how young adults today are transitioning to real life and some of the challenges they face. And as we talked about prior to the break, we were talking about ID theft and smartphones and the impact of Facebook that it certainly has. And it appears that it's going to be staying here. So we've definitely got to work within the reality that we're publicizing a lot of information about ourselves and employers and other people might be looking at that information, but we also discussed how important it is to acquire and manage credit. Now, you referenced this in your book, Mitch. So tell us really, what do you mean by acquiring, managing, and protecting credit, and why are you so focused on it? Thank you, Tony. I am very focused on this because this is my professional background. I come from the lending side of the financial services industry, and I, as you noted, I teach this material to college students. I also lecture on this fairly extensively in different schools. Acquiring, managing, and protecting credit to me is the crux of financial literacy. 
if you think about it for a second, most of what you've read, most of what you've heard harps on budgets, good debt, bad debt, prioritizing needs and wants. And then it jumps over to the other side, investments, the importance of saving frequently and early, compound interest, time value of money, portfolio, retirement savings, and all the rest of the stuff. So there are these two extreme ends, if you will, of the subject of financial literacy. In the middle of it is this thing called credit. And lots of people touch on this and talk a lot about FICO scores and the importance of FICO scores. And I have a comment about that that I'll save for a couple of minutes. To me, unless you get this part right about credit, it really doesn't matter how faithful you are to your budgets. It doesn't matter what you have in your portfolio, what you have in your savings account, because all of that's placed at risk. Credit is the crux of this. Carved out into, into three distinct parts. Acquiring it, you know, how do you get it? What do you have to do? How do lenders look at you when you're looking to borrow money? And I'm not talking just about store card charges or credit cards, but auto loans and mortgages and more serious borrowing that's done. So how do you get it? How do you manage it once you have it? What are the keys? What are the tools for managing it properly? And how do you protect it? And the protection part we touched on with ID theft, how do you make sure that no one's going to do bad stuff to you in that regard? Let me focus just for a second on the managing part of it. The managing, frankly, is fairly easy. And I do talk about this in the course and the book. Number one, pay your bills on time. That's really an easy thing. It's interesting to me how many people don't turn in homework assignments on time, let alone pay their bills on time. Not paying the bills on time affects your credit rating, and it also incurs additional costs. You don't borrow more than you need. The kids have a really hard time with this, especially with student loans. I had a student tell me last week or the week before that her roommate had money left over on the allocation for student loans for this past semester. And rather than not take the money down, she took it and spent it. And I hear this from a lot of students. You know, the money's there, so why not take it? That's borrowing more than you need. You don't fill up your wallet with lots of credit cards. That just encourages more spending. And in particular, look at the danger signs. And they are as much physical as they are emotional. When you're starting to juggle your bills, you're getting late, you're pulling money out of your savings account, and emotionally you're feeling stressed out about money. You're worrying about it. It's keeping you up at night. It's entering into your home life, affecting relationships. It's one of the top five reasons why couples break up is over money. These are the danger signs that you should be aware of, and all falls under the heading of properly managing your credit, which leads me to FICO scores. There is so much discussion about FICOs and how important they are, and the financial literacy gurus jump up and down about managing their FICOs. To me, as a credit professional, FICOs are nothing more than a naturally occurring byproduct of the personal financial life that we live. It's a naturally occurring byproduct. So if we live responsibly, our FICOs are going to be just fine, thank you. And if we don't live responsibly, then they're not going to look good. It's a naturally occurring byproduct. To the extent that you work so hard to try to goose your FICO score for a month, that's just for a month. But any serious lending that's done is looking at the credit bureau. And the credit bureau is actually the story arc for the individual. So there I can see how you've behaved not just this month by virtue of your FICO score, but I could see how you've behaved over a lengthier period of time, how responsible you've been. That's what I focus on, not the FICO. The FICO is incidental, but it's the credit bureau that makes more sense, and they should really focus on that. Well, the other thing, you've touched on this quite a bit in your commentary there, is in the media certainly is mentioning this a lot, that 
the student loan debt is now more than a trillion dollars. So this is, at the outset of a young adult life, they're obtaining credit typically two different ways. One, through the credit cards you've talked about, and second, through their school loans. How did this happen? I guess, what's being done to deal with the problem, and how can we break this kind of destructive cycle going forward? I think three things. Number one, very weak, insufficient education on the way in. I think that this has been a problem. I think that parents and students, I counsel a lot of kids, students and alums inside the school, outside the school that find out about me and ask for some help. The story is kind of similar. Mom and dad didn't have much money and they're really not knowledgeable about these things. I wanted to go to college and it was really up to me to do it for myself. And so I took down the loans and I didn't really think about it. These loans are set up as deferred payment plans, sort of like furniture today, no payments for a year. It's education today, no payments for four years. So there's this disconnect between what you're borrowing and how much you're going to have to pay afterwards. And then all of a sudden you're out of school and you've got all these loans to come due and it's, oh my God, how am I going to make these payments? I can't live. So the education on the front end, the disconnection between the amount that you're borrowing and what that will translate into in form of a monthly payment, it's been weak. Schools and lenders, while they have not, I can't say that they have colluded with one another, they have certainly facilitated one another. The schools have the tuitions that they want to get paid and the lenders have made it possible for the schools to get the tuition paid. Consequently, you have all of this borrowing that's taken place, and it just keeps mounting up, where the students could really have approached higher education a little bit more cost-efficiently than they have. Today, going forward, there's going to have to be a massive workout for these loans, to use a banking term. These loans are going to have to be worked out. And there's all kinds of proposals in this regard. The government program has proposed the income-based repayment program, so loan payments are based on what you can afford to pay, based on how much you earn versus the poverty line. There's a petition that's circulating to provide amnesty for all student debt, and I disagree with that for a variety of reasons, both moral and ethical. And then there's some legislation, is H.R. 4170, that proposes some measure of loan forgiveness in conjunction with a reduction in the loan payments, you know, and so forth. So people are trying to attack this problem as it exists right now, and they're going to have to. There needs to be this massive workout, or you're going to have a lost generation. These kids are going to live diminished lives as a result of the debt that they've taken on. They've signed the paperwork. They've taken it on. They weren't properly prepared for it. They were aided and abetted. You can make all these statements about what's occurred, and they're all true. But you've got a problem. Now you've got to work through the problem. Going forward, I think that there needs to be a change to the way higher education is approached. And I think that the funding of higher education has to change in the process. By changing that funding of higher education, I think that it will lead to a different attitude towards school spending, where you will see more students that decide that they're going to start more modestly at a community college and transfer credits over. They're going to look at how many dollars per credit that they're paying and load up their semesters more fully, you know, as opposed to taking 12 credits. They'll take 18 because they could save a third off the cost of tuition by doing that. You know, you'll see more of this take place, but it requires education going forward, but right now, a workout on on what's taking place. Again, I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the show, I have three young adults, and I've lived this with all three of them. And, you know, it's also part of that whole problem is the peer pressure, because you can be the only one educating your kids about the problems, and they've got 30 friends whose parents haven't educated them talking about how they're going to take this trip to Europe, or they're going to go on spring break because they got all this free money that they're getting and they don't really understand the cost. And I just look at even my own daughter, she wanted to get a student loan and we had to co-sign for it. So I had a little bit of control there because I didn't have 
have to sign for the loan. And I told her, we're not going to sign any loan until you go through and figure out what that cost is going to be. Not only just what are you going to borrow and what's the interest rate, but what is going to be the payment schedule when you get done with school and how much of your income is that going to cost you? Because starting out out of school with her degree, if she's fortunate enough to get a job, it might be 20-25%. And I explained to her, that might be a house payment someday that you can't buy a house because now you've got these student loans. But there's so much of this live for now, they don't want to wait till tomorrow for some of this stuff. And like you talked about going to the community college, when all the friends are going to be living in the dorm, It's pretty hard to think about putting that off and doing that. And the schools, like you said, are really there to support, you know, just come to school, take it easy. I know my son, when he went to college, they had a family day and the dean of students said, it's a difficult transition to college. Maybe just take six or eight credits to start out with and work your way into it. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this preparing for the real world? And he kind of talked about how his kids took six, seven, eight years to get through school. Well, you got a heck of a bill after that many years of having student loans fully support you, plus paying your tuition. It's funny you should say this. An hour ago, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine, somebody I used to work with a number of years ago, and we were talking about this particular topic, and he was telling me that he was at a social gathering where a bunch of parents, they're all standing together, they all have kids that are looking at college or in college, and talking about how much it costs to go to school and complaining about this. My friend said, well, you know, there are alternatives to this. He and I had had this discussion before, and he talked to them about two-year colleges to start, number of credits and all the rest. And this other parent that had been complaining about it said, well, but he won't then have experienced being in college for the four years. He'll have missed this whole experience. So my friend said, well, so if what you're saying is that you're looking to fund a trip to the fraternity house, then great. Then don't complain about the tuition. But if you're looking to do this economically and teach your kids a lesson along the way, then you really got to approach this much more sensibly, practically, and responsibly. Because it's debt that you're going to have to deal with later on in life, you're older, and your kid's going to have to deal with right now, which is going to diminish his life. As a former lender, bank exec, entrepreneur, you've really seen all the sides of the financial equation. So we appreciate that you've shared your philosophy with us today and mention again your book, which is a practical guide to personal finance from college to career. Just share with us how people can access that. Yes, sure. Thank you. The website for the book is lifehappensbook.com. They could also Google me. My full name is Mitchell D. Weiss. D is in David Weiss. You can find the book on the website. The book is based on the course that a colleague and I created for the University of Hartford, and it was written as a mass market book, actually. It's an e-book, and the reason for that is there are more than 300 hyperlinks embedded in the book so that college kids can read it and jump to any particular topic that they want to read more about. Fantastic. So you're definitely taking advantage of our current technology. Also, I'm really focused on how students learn. Don't make my eyes bleed. Let me get in and out of the information quickly. And if I choose to, then I'll go and I'll explore it further. So I'm facilitating that. That's fantastic. Well, listen, we only scratched the surface, I think, of your book today. So be assured we're going to contact you in the future and touch base again and have you share some more of your philosophy. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us this week. And tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your Real Wealth Advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information would be helpful to a friend or family member, 
Just click the Forward to a Friend button. This copyrighted program and its contents is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, nor station render legal, medical, accounting, tax, or other professional advice. The information and opinions expressed here are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendation for any individual situation or security. For specific assistance, you should seek the services of a competent professional. To learn about a specific investment option, ask your Real Wealth Advisor for a prospectus. Please read the prospectus carefully about the fees, expenses, and risks before investing. Real Wealth Advisors offer securities and investment advisory services through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, and registered investment advisor, PO Box 64284, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55164. Real Wealth Advisors and Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated are not affiliated entities. This is Real Wealth Weekly on the Real Wealth Advisor Network. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and have a wonderful week.